this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And we are a week, <laughs> we're, we're a week late. We had all sorts of personal issues, and then when we finally sat down to record a few days ago, we had extreme technical issues. Mm. In other words, internet. the internet. Shitty internet. Shitty internet. But tonight... Like- it seems better tonight. So far. You know, anticipation. People, the, the week's wait will make it all the sweeter for yeah. people. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. And if there's a loud noise in the middle of this, it's because a couple times a day I'm having an issue. The water pump from my well all of a sudden just makes this loud groaning noise and expels several gallons of water into my basement. Ooh. And the plumber hasn't even called me back because they're out straight. But... Yes, everyone's busy. No one's problem but mine. We have updates, right? Yes, we do. I want to say happy birthday because tomorrow's your birthday. Yeah, thanks. Aww. Well, you you know, yeah, I I know, and I'm going. We have our first work gathering in more than a year. We have this lunch thing. One of the big bosses is coming in from out of town, so we're going to Wilson County Barbecue in portland mm. a building i've done many articles about but it, it'll be my first indoor dining experience in more than a year and it's going to be cold and raining as portland tends to be in april mm. so we can't sit outside but then after that i'm going over to our friend barbara ross's house because she wants to talk to me about town meetings it must have something to do with a book she's writing she wants to pick my brain oh. and so she that'll lives be right near me yeah probably for her clam bake series and I know a lot mm. about town meetings, that New England tradition of democracy, because I had to cover them as a reporter and an editor. That's how we do it in my town. But they're nothing no, like the stupid so. Gilmore Girls. So no, just, it's no. nothing like the stupid... Nothing in New England is like the Gilmore Girls. That's something we can... I, we probably, years ago, when they had that stupid reunion show... Yeah, we, we did, did a, talk about them. Yeah, yeah. They did not age well. And we're not talking about their looks or anything. We're talking about the show. But nothing that happened. I mean, that was Connecticut anyway. Like, so, you know, it's like this. New England, sorry, Connecticut. Right. It's like this rich person's fever dream of a manicured New England that doesn't exist. But anyway, I guess we should probably get started. So do you have an update to start I do. I do. It's kind of a double one, but it's very quick because I didn't have time... To, to do much research, but I just want people to know we're aware. It updates the two Jody Perrick episodes, which were a few episodes ago, part one and two, and Janetta Carr, and probably like half of our other episodes. There's three states in which there's bills in their legislatures that would ban police from lying about evidence during interrogations. These bills have been introduced in New York, Illinois, and Oregon. Mm. And as we all know... Police lying to suspects about evidence or even to witnesses and stuff about evidence is one of the ways they coerce false Mm -hmm. confessions. The tactic hasn't been used, for instance, in the UK for decades. In America, we like to do things um, the mean way instead of, (laughs) you know, the logical way. So who knows if they'll get anywhere. I don't even think a lot of people understand the issue. On the Wrongful Conviction podcast, which I listen to occasionally, I won't go into my issues with it, but I do listen to it when Laura Nyrider's on. And they had an episode about this last week or the week before with our friend Laura Nyrider. And there was a former cop on it who said that cops do it because that's how they're trained. But I think that that's a cop-out. 
I think they do it because they can and they're lazy and they don't understand basic psychology and how to have Mm -hmm. people tell a story in a way where the police can figure out what's true and what isn't. And yeah, they have been trained that way, but it's not all on the training system because there are cops who don't do it and there are cops who do. And as we've seen on plenty of true crime shows and stuff, the cops... Yeah, yeah, the cops think they're justified and they don't see a problem with it. And so hopefully those bills will pass. I don't know what the status is. I kind of tried to Google. It was hard to find, blah, blah, blah. Also, episode 77, Say Her Name, The War on Black Women, and also our more recent Janetta Carr episode. The Louisville Police Department is now being investigated by the Justice Department just like the Minneapolis Police Department is, which is a good thing. And all the articles about it, of course, talk about Breonna Taylor, as they should. But I just want to remind people that there are probably a crapload of genetic cars out there, people who were just railroaded into a conviction for a crime they had nothing to do with. And when we did that episode, we talked a little bit about the history of the Louisville Police Department, and it seemed to be their Mm. way of doing things that... you know, falsifying evidence and lying about things and lying to people and making shit up and all, and all sorts of crazy crap, bribing jailhouse snitches. And hopefully the Justice Department will do at least as much research as I did for the Genetikar episode and uh, figure out what's going on in Louisville. Yeah. And just one last thing, the Justice Department is bringing back consent decrees, which I also discussed in episode 77 the Say Her Name episode. It's kind of a way for them to put police departments on probation, and there's some federal oversight of police departments that have kind of gone rogue on a lot of things, and the Trump administration did away with those, and the Biden administration has brought Hmm. them back. So that's my update. And you? Thank you. That was very illuminating. Good. Yes, I have an update. This is an update for episode 67 which in itself was itself an update episode. It was an episode full of updates. It was called, What's the Deal with All the Stuff or something like that. (laughs) I updated episode 36 in that episode, which was about murder on the Appalachian Trail. Oh, yeah. In episode 67, we discussed the murder of Ronald Sanchez and the attempted murder of Kirby Morrell, as well as the assaults on Gina and Jason Hibbert. The man responsible is James Jordan, who grew up on Cape Cod. Last week, James Jordan was found not guilty by reason of insanity. A federal judge, James P. Jones, accepted a plea agreement in which James Jordan would be committed into a psychiatric hospital until he is free from, quote, mental disease or defect and is hmm. no longer a threat to people or property. By law, if a dependent is deemed unable to discern right from wrong because of mental illness, the insanity defense can be applied. Two mental health experts examined James and came to the conclusion that he was legally insane at the time of the attacks. James Jordan, known by the trail name of Sovereign, was in the middle of a psychotic state when he wandered the Appalachian Trail two years ago with his dog Felicia, threatening people and creeping everyone out. His lawyers, whose names were not given in the story I read in the Boston Globe, which was weird. That is weird. They just said his lawyers, recently told the Boston Globe James is now remorseful for what he did now that he's getting treatment for his acute schizoaffective disorder. Quote, Mr. Jordan is deeply 
remorseful for the profound sorrow he has caused. He regrets that his lifelong battle with mental illness ultimately resulted in this trauma and loss for innocent hikers and their families. Most importantly, he would like the victims and the family of Mr. Sanchez to know he thinks about the damage she caused every day and that he would do anything to change the past if he could, end quote. Hmm. James Jordan grew up on Cape Cod in a low in low income housing. His father died of a drug overdose when James was six. His mother was an alcoholic and neglectful, and James and his brother wandered around on their own a lot, staying at the homes of friends. They're basically, you know, on their own. James was known as a gentle soul, but to those who met him on the trail, he was anything but. He accused people of hunting him and scared other hikers enough that they warned each other about him on social media. It was in the George Washington and Jefferson National Forest where Sovereign attacked his victims with a knife after accusing them of hunting him. Sovereign ran after the couple as they were packing up to leave the campsite because he was scaring them. He stabbed and killed Ronald and stabbed Kirby, who pretended to be dead to save herself. To hear more about Sovereign, you can listen to episode 67, What's the Deal with All the Stuff? And to hear about Murder on the Appalachian Trail, listen to episode 36. For some reason, that's one of my favorite ones. I enjoyed, ones. yeah, I enjoyed I don't that. know why. Yeah, I like I, I like them all, but um, yeah. Well, yeah, I think I like them all. Sometimes I think I'm not going to like doing one, and then I really enjoy it yeah. more well, than I expect. Well, hopefully, and thank you for that update. Hopefully you will enjoy tonight's I know. Story. I don't know what it is. You don't. And, and my sources for this are Toronto Life magazine, one particular hmm. story in Toronto Life, the Toronto Globe and Mail, the Muskoka News from Ontario, and episode hmm. 11, season one of the Oxygen, I think it's an Oxygen show, I'm not really sure, A Lie to Die For, Ooh. which I did an NNW rating. I think it was yes. our last episode. I it did was. It. Um, why don't I just launch in? Okay. I've read or heard somewhere that every criminal makes about 30 mistakes when committing a crime, even smart ones. And by the way, that's also the opening line of the book I'm writing. Ooh, <laughs> plug. But, but, yeah, plugging something that doesn't exist. For, for But anyway, mm. but the truth is it only takes one or two really bad mistakes to throw the whole plan down the toilet. Todd Howley thought he was the smartest guy in the room, Always a mistake in itself, but he made more than a couple. Here are some of the basics if you're planning a murder. Something clean and quick is best. Bludgeoning someone to death leaves a lot of evidence, both at the scene and on you. Figure out the cleanup beforehand. Buy your cleanup stuff beforehand, too, and don't mm -hmm. buy it at a local store. If you're going to use cash to buy the cleanup stuff, clever. It won't show on your debit or credit card. Don't withdraw the cash on a purchase at the same <laughs> store just minutes before you buy the murder cleanup stuff. Figure out what to do with the body beforehand, especially if the mm -hmm. person you're killing is big and heavy. Check for surveillance cameras at the scene and determine if they're working or not. Maybe pick a scene for the murder that's not your place of business. If you're going to call yourself from your victim's cell phone as part of an alibi, follow through. If you're returning messages from your wife and other people later, return that <laughs> message too. <laughs> know your victim well enough to know, if you're going to try to frame someone else for killing him, that the story matches his life and what he'd likely do. If you're going to write a fake letter to try to divert police attention and frame someone else, don't write it on your home computer and then leave drafts there in a cleverly named folder. 
After police find the body and initially question you, don't Google things like, quote, removing blood from carpet on your computer. Mm -hmm. The next day, when they interview you again and ask for a DNA test, don't go home and Google fooling a DNA test. (laughs) Another tip. Like I said, Todd Howley always thought he was the smartest guy in the room. But those are just some of the mistakes he made Mm -hmm. when he killed Paul Masland. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And to be clear, Paul Maslin made some mistakes too. This isn't to victim blame, but Maslin should have seen some major red flags when he set out to do business with Todd Howley. Maslin was an angel investor, someone who invests in businesses and startups that do social good. When you're spreading money around like that, it's important to do due diligence. It's part of the process. And Maslin tried, but he also trusted Howley just a little too much and ignored the red flags. And that was his fatal mistake. Mm. First, though, Todd Howley. Todd Howley was born in Sarnia, Ontario. After high school, he started working at the Elliott Mitsura machine plant in Oakville, Ontario. He sold and installed computer software that ran metal cutting machines. While Howley hadn't gone to college, he was smart. According to Michael Lista in an article in Toronto Life, quote, He was good at his job, maybe the best, but he was Mm. also condescending and obsessive, Mm. which made it hard for others to work with him. He always fancied Mm -hmm. himself the smartest person in the room Mm. and believed anyone who didn't recognize his brilliance must be an idiot. Mm, And I I just want to say I can relate to that. Yeah, I kind of see that. Howley lived with his wife, Gina, a pharmaceutical researcher in Oakville, which is a suburb just south of Toronto on Lake Ontario. And it has the distinction of being the province's biggest town at more than 190,000 people. Lista of Toronto Life writes that Howley, by all accounts, was a good family man, unquote. Frankly, in all my research, I couldn't find anyone who knew him personally outside of business speaking about him except his wife, and I don't know where Lista gets this information. And I have some other issues with Michael Lista's um, perceptions, which we'll talk about later, but I think Lista is just being superficial and thinks because Howley had a wife and kids that he lives with and you know, goes home every night that somehow that makes him a good family man. I can't really see him being as abrasive, controlling, narcissistic, Mm. and ultimately psychopathic as he is and being a good family man. (laughs) Anyway, in 1999, Howley had had enough of working for people who didn't appreciate his genius, again, I can relate, and started a company that designed and built turbine blades using the same tools he'd sold and installed at Mitsura. In 2001, he patented a design for a wind turbine that apparently was quite successful. He needed investment to develop it, and Paul Maslin, an Ontario philanthropist, you know, I mentioned him earlier, invested. Yes. It's not clear how much money he invested or how well they knew each other at the time, but it was apparently a successful venture. Howley sold the company in 2005 and founded a power generation company. According to Lista, he taught himself to engineer technologies like gas turbines and hydrogen and ethanol generators. Hmm. He'd long been dealing with the evolving energy generation industry, and he saw that's where the money was. But his new startup meant relying on investors. And I can tell you from the work I do at my job, which is a business publication, and it takes a special approach and know-how to deal with investors and make startups work. It's a balance of really, really knowing your industry and your product and knowing how to put money deals together and also knowing the investment industry. There's a lot of money out there that people are looking to invest, but tapping it takes a special skill. And it's a skill that Howley didn't have. Mm. Michael Lister writes, 
Over the next few years, Holly was set to partner with investment firms, renewable energy companies, and tech startups. Each time, he says, the money men failed him. Early enthusiasm gave way to indifference. Lucrative projects were proposed, then scuttled. And without exception, everyone would get paid but him. So this is Maureen again. From Holly's point of view, the money men failed him. He was smart and had good ideas, so you have to wonder what the problem was. The investors, you know, they invest the money. It's up to the person with the startup to do the other work. So it's not generally investors who let someone down if they're legitimate investors. It's the person with the product not doing a good job of, you know, doing whatever he's supposed to. If you're not getting an idea of the kind of fella Todd Holly was, this will probably get you there. What does an entrepreneur who has good ideas but can't nail down investors do? You got it. He writes a 30-page manifesto highlighting all the different ways investors had let him down and naming names. And what does he do with such a document, you may wonder? Well, Holly had originally started it as a resume to get potential investors, so that's what he used it for. And, you know, ladies, have you ever been sitting in a bar and a guy tries to pick you up and his whole line is going on and on about what a bitch his ex-wife is and how she screwed him over? That's kind of the metaphor for what Todd Howley mm-hmm. did. And I think we can all relate to that. And it's not a line that would normally work. Michael Lista presents the whole thing as the white shoe investors not respecting the guy with the high school education. But my guess is a lot of investors saw he was a lot of talk, but they weren't sure what the substance was and didn't know if he had what it takes mm-hmm. to bring his ideas to light or if he'd screw them over or something. Who knows? Tom Wallace, who was to become Paul Maslin's business partner, said of Todd Halley, he wants you to listen to him as opposed to discussing with him. And he Mm. doesn't want to hear what you have to say, even if you're a technical man. So I think that was probably one of Todd Howley's issues. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, around this time, he was getting deeper into debt to the tune of a quarter of a million Canadian dollars. His leases for his lab and equipment were $25,000 a month. And Lista said that he listed in his personal books how much his investors owed him. While all this was going on, Howley was working on a new invention, something different that had no relation to wind turbines or metal cutting. Howley had discovered something fairly simple, that the algae that grows on northern Ontario water bodies seemed to be a super scrubber for carbon emissions, soaking it out of the air and even thriving on it. The idea is based on the fact that algae balloons when exposed to carbon and other industrial emissions, and Howley was trying to figure out a way to use it to absorb industrial emissions and then use the algae's oil as a biofuel. And I don't want to get too technical. You know, I think that's a good enough description of what it was. Lista, the reporter, says that Howley was in debt and at rock bottom, but it turned out not to be a bad thing because he thinks he found the thing that will turn everything around. Now, I got the impression from other accounts I've read of this that he'd been working on this for some time and was likely in debt more because he wasn't doing anything else but kind of working on this and also, mm-hmm. you know, writing manifestos and stuff. And it's not like he was at rock bottom and then came up with this idea and it's like, Eureka. I think Lista gives him too much credit when he says that the invention was to not only make himself rich, but maybe save the planet. I don't think Halley was that interested in mm-hmm. saving the planet, except for maybe how that would reflect on him. Mm. Anyway, at that same time in 2008, at the same time Halley was looking for investors for his new idea, 
Paul Maslin was leaving the corporate world to start his own angel investing firm. Paul Maslin was originally from Australia. His father was Dutch and his mother American. He didn't live down under for long. His father was an agrarian engineer who advised governments on how to grow crops more scientifically. And they lived in Iowa, Nebraska, Turkey, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Boston. Ooh. Before Maslin landed in Toronto. As a kid, Maslin loved science, science fiction, and was a good enough chess player to once play Boris Spassky, the chess grandmaster, to 33 moves. While Todd Howley is often described in physically flattering terms, broad-shouldered, boy-next-door, etc., Maslin is frequently described in unflattering ones, portly, bespectacled, balding. Lista frequently describes him as waddling, like he waddled to the door, and yet doesn't help that Maslin had a funny walk related to a broken foot he suffered as a youth, supposedly in a tobogganing accident, but I don't know if that's just... Canadians being Canadians and making that up. Um, but people had good things to say about him as a person, unlike Todd Holly. Lista on the Lie to Die For true crime show said that Maslin is not just was not just a brilliant man, but he was affectionate, he was kind, he was caring, and he was fun. A good friend of his, Brody Featherstone, said on the same show that Paul was a very, very trusting guy. You look him in the eye and you tell him something, and he'd think it was the absolute truth. Tom Wallace, his business partner, I know, said he's a visionary, he's looking for what's going to happen in two years and five years and ten years to make society better. Basically, he was looking for something to invest in, not to make a ton of money, but that would make the world a better place. Maslin was married to Lee Stanton, a real estate agent who had a teenage son from a first marriage. He apparently wasn't interested in having kids or more kids or whatever. They lived in London, Ontario, about 100 miles southwest of Toronto, on that bridge of land between Lake Erie and Lake Huron, Mm. that if you're driving from New York to Michigan or somewhere in the upper Midwest you go through, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've driven there, Becky. Um, No, I haven't, actually. Well, we did when we moved from Michigan back to New York in 1968, which you don't remember, but 1967. But um, I have, when I visited, like when Liz was at Michigan State and Nikki and Todd were out in Michigan, and that time I Mm -hmm. drove to Minnesota. And uh, anyway, you can't anyway now since the borders of Canada are still closed. But Lee, Lee, um, his wife, had a cottage in Bracebridge on Lake Huron, farther north in Ontario, probably a three and a half hour drive from London, Ontario. And this area um, where her cottage is is called Cottage Country in Canada. So I envision something pretty and lake-like. But Paul wasn't a big fan of the lake life. Yeah, it's cottagey, right? They call them cottages up there, not camps like we do here in Maine. But Paul wasn't a big fan of the lake life, so he didn't go up that often. But Lee went up a lot. Maslin spent weekends at their home in London, for the most part, but weekdays in Toronto, where he had an apartment. According to Michael Lista, the journalist, the apartment was essentially an office. Quote, his only decoration was a painting of two of his purebred boxers, the dogs, which he left unhung in the corner. Were they playing poker? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Sorry. which he left unhung in the corner of his bedroom. He didn't even spring for a headboard. By 2009 or so, the couple basically lived apart, but kept in frequent contact with phone calls every few days and through regular visits. By all accounts, they were still committed to each other. They just didn't hang out with each other a lot. Maslund was also, by some accounts, an alcoholic, which was part of the problem Mm. in his marriage, according to some of the articles. He was also diabetic and depressed, 
according to Mm. some articles, which was fueled by his feeling that he didn't have colleagues he could confide in. Every afternoon, he'd go to a bar. Confide to my colleagues. No, me neither. Fuckers. Every afternoon, he'd go. What? What if they listen to us? They don't listen. I've told you before. They they barely, I am the most uninteresting person in the world to them. Okay. No. But anyway, every afternoon, Paul Maslin would go to a bar called Jingles, a few blocks away from his apartment. It was where he'd met his wife, and where, according to Lista, every afternoon he'd throw back three or four double Johnny Walker blacks and maybe a beer before heading home. Lista wrote, When he was sober, he was charismatic but shy. After a few drinks, he'd become more ebullient and affectionate, but he never slurred or spilled. So, um, I guess that's a... (laughs) Maybe it's a Canadian thing, that's a good thing. But anyway, Paul Maslin also loves science, and he loves sharing information about it. One time his niece had an argument with him about a science idea. Maslin didn't get angry. Instead, a month later, she began to receive weekly editions of a science magazine in the mail. Yeah. Yeah. I mentioned the picture of the boxer dogs. We don't know if they were playing poker. One thing Maslin and his wife Lee Stanton did share (laughs) is that they owned and fostered boxers. They also helped sponsor show dogs, Mm. one of which won best in breed at the Westminster Dog Show. The boxer dog angle will later play a part in solving Maslin's murder. One thing Maslin and Holly shared in common and maybe it's what drew them together, is the knowledge that they were better and smarter on their own than working for the man. And again, I'm right there with them. Maslin graduated Mm. in 1977 from the University of Toronto's Engineering School and got work as a computer programmer for a company that designed software for flight simulators. As the Toronto Life journalist Michael Lista tells it, one night at a staff party, Maslin boasted he could do the work more efficiently on his own. One of his superiors overheard him and hired him as an independent contractor. And so in 1981, he founded Daedalian Systems Group, a software development firm named after Daedalus of Greek mythology. And I just want to say, if it was a woman like me, for instance, who was overheard boasting that she could do it better than the people who were doing it, the guy wouldn't have turned around and given me a lucrative contract. He would have fired my ass and mm-hmm. then told everybody what a bitch I was. Not that exactly. that's ever happened to me, but I'm just saying. <laughs> Initially, Maslin worked out of his parents' basement in Toronto, but by the time he sold the company in 2001, it had hundreds of employees in its own nice building. Mm. After he sold the business, he hooked up with a company, Atlantic Systems Group, that was developing touchscreens before anyone even knew what they were. His later business partner, Tom Wallace, told the Toronto Globe and Mail, at the time it was like, holy smokes, what are you guys up to? But again, Maslin really didn't like working for other people. So in 2008, at the age of 53, he left to form his investment group with the idea that it would back one single pitch instead of a number of investments. The idea is to infuse a startup with capital, and once it takes off, go public with it and make a financial killing. Maslin was CEO and chairman of the board of the fund, Verdant Financial Partners, though he did need others to um, invest in it, so, you know, it would have a bunch of capital. According to the Globe and Mail, his business contacts were happy to do it because Paul had a reputation for being thorough, doing his research, and knowing his stuff. Quote, I don't think I ever went and met with Paul when he didn't have some sort of magazine, you know, science magazine, unquote, Doug Dondieri, a friend and former colleague, told the Globe and Mail. Quote, he always just couldn't stuff the information in fast enough for him. He was just omnivorously, <laughs> I can't say the word, hungry for the stuff and fascinated by the magic of science. 
Michael Lister writes that Maslin never wanted to be rich. He just wanted to succeed at something interesting. Tom Wallace, hmm. you know, the Holy Smokes guy who ended up being Maslin's business partner, knew both Maslin and Holly, though he didn't know Holly well. And in 2008, while Maslin was looking for the project to put Vernon's money behind, Holly sent Wallace that 30-page manifesto, you know, the one recounting how all his past investors had screwed him over. Somehow, hmm. Wallace just didn't dump it in the trash. Though the document did alarm Wallace, Lista of Toronto Life wrote, quote, he never seen anything like it, a tirade against investors by someone looking for financing. Wallace hmm. was apprehensive, but he knew someone who might appreciate the algae technology and, could, and who could handle Howley, unquote. And of course, hmm. that was Paul Maslin. Wallace thought the algae inv- invention looked like a grade nine science experiment. And yes, the manifesto was an odd way to woo investors, but Maslin wasn't your normal investor. And Wallace said that both Maslin and Holly liked big, bold ideas. Maslin met Holly at his lab in Oakville and told him on the spot that he wanted in. Quote, wow. it's nothing short of an epiphany, he later wrote, according to Lista. The Globe and Mail wrote that Maslin decided that Holly's idea was so simple it was unlikely to fail. And it also came at a time when the government and others were ramping up green technology funding. That said, a lot was riding on it. Remember, Maslin's strategy was to invest in just one pitch, so it had to be a winner. Maslin also wasn't a soft touch with money. For instance, right around the time he was getting involved with Holly, he was suing someone else for 35000 they owed him on a loan that hadn't been repaid. Mm-hmm. But the idea was cheap, simple, and piqued the scientific interest Maslin had. If it was successful, Maslin could use the capital that he gained by it to invest in things like 3D organ printing and other scientific things he was interested in. His offer to Howley's business was that he pay $200,000 over the next three years and also pay Howley $120,000 a year salary to serve as the Hmm. company's chief technical officer. So basically, Maslin would own the company with the investment, yep. and Holly would work for him. The agreement stipulated that Holly couldn't sell the technology to anyone else without a release from Maslin. It also called for an independent auditor to test the process. Mm-hmm. Holly agreed to Maslin's offer, but he also told Maslin he needed some immediate money to get out of arrears and get things going before the audit on the process could be done. Tom Wallace, who was now Verdant's chief financial officer, urged Maslin not to lay out any money or even negotiate a deal with Halley until the due diligence was done and no. the product was tested. But Maslin had more faith in Halley. He brought that idea up to Halley and Halley pushed back, saying he couldn't work for free, and Maslin agreed with him. One thing Halley did do to show good faith was file for a grant for $109,000, but those take time, months and months, if they're even approved, and he still needed money to get things going. Lister remarks on how Howley asked Maslin for a loan after, quote, coming into all this money, but I don't think he would have had the money until the tests were done. Now, before I get into yeah. the whole financial back and forth, I want to say that when I first watched A Lie to Die For, I was very confused because they glossed over this whole business thing. Um, and Lista said that on the show, not in his article. But basically, the money Verdant was going to invest only kicked in after the test worked, and it could exactly. only be used for the business, though Howley would get a salary. And despite the fact that they hadn't finalized the business because the test hadn't been done, I'm sure they had a preliminary agreement in effect about Verdant's proprietary ownership of the technology so that Halley couldn't shop around while they were getting the testing done and doing that final thing. Which nobody really says, 
but that's how it would work. Anyway, Maslin agreed to loan Holly money and transferred $30,000 into Holly's bank account in September 2009, making it clear the money was from his family's trust fund and it had to be paid back. A week later, Holly asked for another $5,000, saying his leases were in arrears for his equipment in the lab, and Maslin wrote another check. Mm. Apparently, the need for immediate money didn't raise any red flags with Maslin. Michael Lister writes that at the same time he was cutting Holly checks, he was gushing to friends, family, and even his personal trainer about his Mm. company's new acquisition. The money spigot was open now. A little later, Holly asked for another $7,215, and Maslin wired him the money. Two weeks later, Holly emailed Maslin, quote, The lack of resources is getting critical now that we have bill collectors and bailiffs in the house. Maslin sent him $9,785. Maslin also wrote, I will transfer another $18,000 by early next week, bringing our total to $70,000. However, that is as far as I can go. Maslin was by now liquidating investments, his own personal ones, and maxing out his three lines of credit Mm -hmm. to funnel money to Holly. He drew up a loan agreement that listed the $109,000 grant Holly has applied for his collateral, I guess Mm. by then it might have been approved, as well as all of Holly's personal assets, including the three companies that made up Holly's project and Holly's house. The Toronto Stock Exchange requires, when a company like Maslin's acquires another company in this kind of deal, that a press release has to be issued making the announcement. When Maslin, I think it's just to keep everything on the up and up. Exactly. You know, so investors on this. So it's public, yeah. Right, right. When Maslin prepared a letter of intent and drew up the release and sent Holly a draft, Holly responded, I really do not want the attention of the names of my companies out there. Hmm. And that's a curious response, Michael Lista said, should have set up a red flag, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes. By June 2010, Maslin had loaned Holly $105,000. This, again, was not the capital investment money to acquire the companies that wouldn't be used until Holly's process passed the test. Apparently, Todd Holly asked for even more money that June because a June 15th email from Maslin to him said, Hi, Todd, doesn't look like I'll be able to make that advance. At this point, Maslin's wife, Lee Stanton, was getting pissed off that they had to cut back on their personal expenditures because they were so strapped because of this project. And Tom Wallace, the CFO of Verdant, was pissed too. That summer, he emailed Maslin, quote, I had a very different vision than Todd Howley. I actually need to sell the shares of Verdant for my daughter's schooling. Wallace said he was seeing a ton of red flags, he said that on a lie to die for, and that Holly was always saying he was broke, yet when Wallace visited Holly's house once, he saw he recently had what he estimated were half a million dollars in renovation. <laughs> Quote, but I didn't see where the source of the money was. Maslin felt Wallace was overreacting and continued to support Holly. He told his wife in an email that the CFO needs some anger management. Tom Wallace later said, Paul took a huge gamble for Todd, and the amount of effort and time and love we gave Todd was overwhelming. It was over the top. Lee Stanton, Maslin's wife, said Maslin was still confident about the project, but also concerned about the fact that Todd said he was going to pay him back, but he didn't. Maslin suggested other revenue-generating avenues to Holly. It's not clear what he suggested, but according to the emails, Holly said no. In one email, he wrote, Holly said he'd have to end up selling his house to pay off his creditors. Police later tried to track down some possible investors Holly told Maslin he was trying to line up. 
in a move to get Maslin to loan him even more money, but police couldn't find any of these investors. Maslin decided the time had come to do the audit of the process and get the acquisition done. He hired an engineer named Michael Gaynor to audit the tests in Halley's Oakville lab. Lista says he gets the sense that Halley was bristling at the testing part of the deal from the beginning, and also he didn't like the engineer being there, not just overseeing them, but kind of questioning Halley's brilliance. Judy Ho, on a lie to die for, a forensic psychologist, says that Halley probably felt he shouldn't have to justify his brilliance, people should just believe him. Mm, well, yeah. The tests were pretty straightforward. They expected that when the carbon dioxide passed through the algae-filled cylinders, the algae would grow at a predictable rate, the rate Halley said it would. But that didn't happen. The amount of biomass produced was only a tenth of what it should have been. As Lister wrote, Halley's technology hadn't just failed, it had failed spectacularly. But Maslin wasn't deterred. He said they'd do a second test, and on June 29, 2010, they tried it again. The engineer, Michael Gaynor, helped Halley start the test up and then left, and six hours later, Halley harvested the algae. This time, the results were spectacular. Too spectacular for Gaynor, the engineer. They were four Mm. times what they were supposed to be. Todd's analysis does not add up, Gaynor told Maslin. He said either Halley can't work his way through simple math, or Halley had no idea what he was doing, or he Mm. was cheating. But Maslin was still on Howley's side. Howley wrote to Maslin, I fear no matter what I do for Michael, he will question the accuracy. Maslin thought Gaynor was overreacting, Lister wrote. He had sunk over $100,000 into the project. He believed he could deal with Howley, and if he scrapped the deal, he'd have to get a job, and he hated being an employee. Tom Wallace, the CFO, wasn't happy either. Quote, the test showed something impossible, and at that point in time, I just wanted to walk. I just didn't trust the guy. Maslin wasn't appreciating the red flags that he said were in full display. And he wasn't. He'd give Howley one more chance. When he told Mm. Howley, Howley replied, let me see what I still have lying around in regards to bioreactors and algae. And Maslin wrote back to him, don't we still have the equipment? And Howley replied, I still most of the equipment, but it is in pieces since I have to clean it up after each test. But this wasn't true. The equipment was across Lake Erie and across the Canada-U.S. border in Ohio. Unbeknownst to Paul Maslin, who, as I've said, was a very trusty man, Howley had also negotiated deals with at least a dozen other investors. He'd promised all of them exclusive proprietary rights. They range from small companies like Midge Energy, owned by a contractor named Mike Midgeliati in Ohio, where the equipment now was, to corporations like Algenius in Germany that had secured funding from members of the Habsburg family and was preparing to launch Holly's mm. system on the German stock exchange. And while he hadn't yet signed the deal with Maslin, he'd used the credit from that $109,000 grant which was the collateral on the loans from Paul, to get an advance from two different financing companies and then use the rest of it to pay several creditors. So it was almost kind of a Ponzi scheme-ish kind of thing. Yeah. He, he was using people's money to pay other people. He did have some money coming in. He was getting $5,000 a week from Midge Energy, the Ohio company, where his equipment was, for them to use the equipment which he'd ship there immediately after the second test. If they did do a third test, if he got the equipment back, and if it didn't yield the results Maslin wanted, Vernet would have to issue a press release by Toronto Stock Exchange rules declaring the project a failure. It would be public knowledge, and Howley's whole house of cards would collapse. So Howley was in a bind. Mm. 
He either had to do the third test with equipment he no longer had and couldn't get his hands on that could possibly fail, or he had to pay Maslin back the $105,000 he owed him, which he didn't have. So, hmm, Mm. what to do? What to do? After the last email to Maslin that said he had most of the equipment but had to put it back together since he had to clean it after each test, Holly stayed on the computer. Police would later find that he googled nail gun, nail gun modified, Mm -hmm. and nail gun massacre. A little while later, he mailed Maslin back and said he'd do the final test. They agreed to a date a few weeks later at 10 a.m. on Sunday, August 29th, 2010. A week before the test, Tom Wallace told Maslin he had a bad feeling about Howley and that they should just cut their losses, but Maslin wouldn't hear of it. On Sunday, August 29th, 2010, security footage shows Maslin's blue Subaru Forester arriving at Todd Howley's warehouse in Oakville for the third test at around 10 a.m. It also showed Howley's car circling the parking lot before pulling into a space an hour and 15 minutes earlier. Lee Stanton, Maslin's wife, was up at the cottage in Bracebridge. He talked to her late the night before and made plans to pick up his mother and her friend the next day and take them to lunch after he was back from the test in Oakville. After he didn't show up, they started to worry. His wife had also expected to hear from him Sunday night to make plans to bring his mother up to the cottage on Tuesday, but he never called. On Monday, Paul's sister, Lisa Maslin, called Holly to ask if he'd heard from Paul. Holly told her he'd gotten a call from Paul's cell phone at 12.53 on Sunday, and he'd had a tentative meeting with him that morning, but he never showed up. He also said Paul hadn't shown up at a meeting scheduled for Monday and hadn't contacted him. He didn't seem upset that Paul hadn't showed up, Lisa said later. Family members called Paul's phone numerous times, but he never answered or called back. It was becoming very clear to me that Paul was missing, his sister said. His wife tried calling him again Monday night, but he never answered, and on Tuesday, August 31st, his family reported him missing. That same day, Warren Johnson was bringing his boat down the Morrow Drive boat launch in a residential area of Bracebridge, where Maslin's wife had her cottage. As he was backing onto the launch, he saw the lid of a plastic container, two purple grocery totes, a pair of blue latex gloves, and a pair of pink ones, a white rope with freshly frayed ends, and two black garbage bags whose contents spilled out onto the beach. Or at least that's what he saw when he looked more closely. At first he thought it was trash, and being a good citizen, he went over to clear it up. When he got close, he saw sticking out from between the garbage bags what looked like a human knee. I saw a kneecap, he later said. That's the first thing I saw. He yelled at the bags, but there wasn't any movement. Mm -hmm. What he was looking at, he realized, was a body laid out on the beach close to the water's edge facing up. Its legs and feet were covered by a black garbage bags, as were the head and arms, which were stretched out over the head in the direction of the water. The remaining portion of the torso, his bare chest, as well as his green shorts, were exposed to the air. Johnson ran to tell residents who lived nearby, and they called the police, and then he and the neighbor returned to the scene. I don't have to tell you, it was Paul Maslin. He'd been bludgeoned to death, though that fact wasn't reported immediately. The coroner ruled he'd been murdered, but they weren't publicly saying the cause of death. Police found that Maslin's black polo shirt was covered by the top garbage bag as it had been pulled up over his head. The pockets in his shorts were turned out. In the space between the arms and the water's edge, two pairs of knit gloves were found. One pair was pink, the other blue. Further out into the water lay a Swiss Army watch, still running. It was Maslin's. Two purple tote bags, plus a clear plastic bin lid that had a reddish-brown stain on it, and that had been left on the ground near the body. At first, the press reported police were stumped. Quote, 
Three police forces are probing the murder of Paul Masland, whose body was found in cottage country the day hmm. he was reported missing in Toronto, said the Toronto Star on Saturday, September 4th, six days after Maslin's murder and four after his body was found. But by that time, the investigation into Maslin's disappearance had been gathering steam. On Monday, an employee at Chatham, Inc., a business in Mississauga, a town between Oakville and Toronto, had noticed a blue Subaru Forester that had been left in a handicapped spot in the business's parking lot. The next day, other employees noticed the out-of-place vehicle, too. They saw what looked like blood on the steering wheel and gear shift, blood stains on the outside back bump, and a smudge of blood on the rear hatch door. A piece of what appeared to be particle board or wood chip was on the center back bumper, too, stuck in the blood. Sand particles were also mixed in with most mm. of the exterior blood marks and were present in the vehicle's right rear passenger footwell and trunk area. They called the police. Police went and got the mm. car and eventually identified it as Maslin's. Quote, we were surprised, very shocked, Maslin's sister Ann told the Toronto Star. Her voice trembling with grief, the star said. He was a very kind mm. person, very generous, liked by a lot of people. We have no idea why someone would do this. One big puzzler was where Maslin's body was found, where his wife's cottage was. Maslin didn't like visiting the cottage. He thought it was too hot and there were too many bugs, and he didn't even like to swim. It was on an island, only accessible by boat, and he didn't like being on boats. He couldn't drive one, and his wife had to pick him up at the marina, though not the boat launch where his body was found, and take him out there. At some point, the timeline isn't clear, but it was in the days after the murder, the Ontario Provincial Police got a curious letter at their Bracebridge Police Headquarters. It was from an anonymous sender, and I'll just read it to you. And the letter, which looks like it was typed by a computer, said, I am writing to you to inform you of my inadvertent involvement in a murder this Sunday past in Muskoka Falls. And I'm going to read it exactly the way it's written, so it may not seem to make sense okay. in some places. My idea about supply you with this information is that you should give me some benefit if my identity is eventually found out. Both Lee and Paul Stanton hmm. have a cottage in Bracebridge. They are part owners in a dog kettle that breeds boxer dogs in London. Those dogs often come to our area at the lake with Lee, and this is how we got to know the Stantons. Most of the other local cottagers love these dogs, and when Paul threatened to end his support to the kennel, those other cottagers decided to seduce Paul into his ongoing support. As it is public information at the cottages, last week Paul was promised a skinny dip with two of the visiting women Ooh. in an attempt at changing his mind about the dogs. When Paul agreed to the deal, the two women also thought it would be a good idea to also threaten his beloved cell phone with a hatchet. Since the two women do not cut their own wood, they do not have a hatchet. So they asked my wife for one. This is a weird letter. Okay. I know. Yes. More on this letter later. So they asked my wife for one, but instead she gave them my heavy wooden mallet instead. When Paul meet the woman on Sunday by the falls, mm. they went to their favorite secluded area where they often hid by a dock. What I have been told was that before they went skinny dipping, they first threatened to smash Paul's phone with my mallet, but he did not care since he just wanted to see the two women naked. Then they started to call the people in Paul's speed dial to tell them that Paul was fooling around on Lee. That is when Paul violently attacked the girl with the phone and began to punch and slap her. The other woman then picked up the mallet and began to hit Paul on the back to stop the attack. When Paul fell into the water, he also pulled the girl in with him, and the other woman jumped in to help, and they struggled even more. When the girl finally mm. broke free, Paul went and hid under the docket, and the two women fled for safety. 
Instead of reporting the attack, they went back to Bracebridge for a drink. During their drinks, they thought Ooh. that it would be a good idea to make a better deal with Paul for more support for the dogs, so they went back to the dock to make the offer, but Paul had drowned himself under the dock. Since the two women had already drank too much, they felt it would be best to bring Paul's body out of the water and put it in his car for someone to find, since they knew no one would find him under the dock. After yanking him out from, a, from the dock with a dock rope, they pulled him over to the boat <laughs> ramp, where they tried for an hour lift him onto his truck. Once they had him in the trunk, they could not close the hood, since he had already stiffened up, so they tied the trunk closed. When they tried to drive up the boat ramp hill, Paul slid out the trunk, since the woman put a garbage bag over his head to hid his expression. Since hmm. the women were already tired from lifting him up the first time, they just left him at the ramp and drove his car to the chute to leave it there. Then they decided that the car had all of their fingerprints, so they wanted to wipe it down first. When they both started to drive back to their cottage separately, they figured that someone would see and notice her driving Paul's car, so they took the back roads home and dropped off his car in Toronto. The reason that I'm telling you this information is that the mallet can be traced back to me, and since they left it at the dock, I do not want to be part of the scram of Threat and Paul. Paul is a pervert, and his death is his own fault for attacking the girls, but they did try to extort him, not me. And I just want to say, too, that that letter was written uh, with a lot of misspellings and bad sentences, as you as you can probably yeah. surmise. It could have been on purpose, but maybe not. And also, you notice how it calls him Paul Stanton, his wife's last name. I think that was a clever ploy. But anyways, Michael Lista says it's written in kind of an affected, semi-literate dialect, presumably in imitation of what its author believed the people of Bracebridge thought and sounded like, unquote. <laughs> and I just want to talk for a sec about letters like this. I'd love to know if police ever get a real letter from someone who's actually involved in a crime that spells everything out like this. The only time I, I ever see them is on true crime docs when they're fake. Oh, and the, I'm sorry, that's a spoiler. But you already knew that, right? Yeah, well, yeah. I did. Yeah. Yeah. The letter does have information only the murderer or someone at the murder would know, including information on the rope and garbage bags and, as we see later, the cause of death. Lista also points out that running beneath the, quote, unusual plot of the letter is a familiar Todd Howley theme. The murderers were motivated by what they perceived as Paul Maslin's failure as an investor, which, you know, hmm. Todd Howley was obsessed with investors who let him down. While it's possible Todd Howley expected the Bracebridge police to start pulling over women with I heart boxer dog stickers on their car or something, <laughs> the police weren't fooled, and in any way they already had their eye on Todd Howley. Remember how, at the beginning of this, I talked about mistakes? This letter definitely was one. Not only did it have information only the killer could know, but they later found drafts of it on his computer what under a file... Idiot. I know, under a file titled Toto 1. So let's hmm. go back to some more of those mistakes and what really happened, not that crazy women's skinny dipping I don't even story. understand the I know. whole story. I know, it's crazy. And you're going to hear some dumb stuff as far as Holly goes, but the investigation got off to a good start with a smart cop. Brenda Thomas That's... of the Ontario... Oh, a woman? Yes. 
Of the, yes, the Ontario Provincial Police Forensic Identification Officer noticed as she was driving to the scene. Actually, she drove through a storm as she was driving to the scene and noticed that it was going in the same direction she was. She realized that rain over the boat launch could wash away evidence. So she called for a tent to be put over the body and the scene where the body was found. And she also saw a garbage truck going toward the launch and she canceled its route so that it wouldn't pick up anything that could be possible evidence. She's smart. Yes, and it would prove to be essential in tying Maslin's murder to Todd Holly. So we know it wasn't a couple of crazed boxer dog lovers who killed Maslin in a skinny dipping blackmail scam. So what really happened? Here's the sequence of events. In the weeks between when Holly and Maslin had set up the meeting and when it took place, Holly had been busy on his computer. Besides hmm. the mail gun Googles, he'd Google things like routes to and from Bracebridge, as well as Maslin scam and Maslin dogs, spelling Maslin wrong every time, which is why I wonder if the misspellings in the letter were not on purpose. But And Lister wrote, he was planning the death of a man whose name he still couldn't spell. <laughs> <laughs> and I add, all this planning, and he still, as you'll see, totally fucked up practically every aspect of the murder, as far as covering his tracks. On Saturday, August 28th, the day before the murder, it was a pretty routine day for both Maslin and Holly. Maslin went to Jingles, of course, where he drank his customary double Johnny Walker Blacks, and when he got home, he phoned his wife and asked for advice on what to do about a rash on his face. Yeah. He made plans to pick up his mother and her friend the next day at 12.30 after he got back to Toronto from Oakville, where they were going to have the test with the algae, and then take his mom and her friend to lunch. Then he went to bed. That same evening, Holly took his wife and kids out for dinner at Boston Pizza. Mm. The next morning, Maslin took the elevator down from his apartment in Toronto. The security camera shows him wearing a black golf shirt, green khaki shorts, black shoes with high black socks, and carrying a briefcase. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Although we shouldn't make fun, the poor guy. He, I'm one to talk. I'm no. not a fashion. Yeah. Me neither. He arrived at Holly's warehouse in his blue Subaru at 9.59 a.m. Holly knew there were security cameras that pointed at the parking lot from his neighbor's business, but he assumed they were decoys and didn't work. It would be another mistake and a really stupid assumption. Anyway, mm. Holly had been there for more than an hour before Maslin got there, and he had prepared, but you'd think given the amount of time he'd had, three weeks, and even the hour that morning, he would have planned better. <laughs> yeah. He apparently attacked Maslin the minute Paul walked through the door, for those of you who don't like blow-by-blow blow accounts of a murder, you may want to fast-forward a minute or two. Here's how Michael Lista describes it. He used something long and hard, like a piece of wood or a crowbar. The murder weapon was never found. Maslin had five colossal lacerations on his head that split his scalp to the bone and set Ugh. fractures branching through his skull like cracks in ice. His jaw was broken in half, as was the hyoid bone in his throat. Twelve of his ribs were fractured, and his shoulders, back, and legs were bludgeoned to the color of dusk. Mm. Maslin was beaten over nearly every inch mm. of his body except his hands and forearms. He had no injuries that were typically called defensive wounds. He still believed in Holly enough not to raise his arms to protect himself, unquote. Although, mm. I'm going to say that I think anybody would instinctively protect himself. My guess is that the first blow was to his head, like maybe the back yes. of his head. I would think he was incapacitated. And stunned yes. him enough, so, and yeah. then Holly just went nuts on him. But anyway, when Holly left the lab 15 minutes after Maslin arrived, Maslin was unconscious but still alive. Footage from those cameras that Holly thought were decoys shows him driving Maslin's blue Subaru around the corner and out of sight behind the building next door. 
Then he runs back inside where he apparently rifled through Maslin's shorts and briefcase for his cell phone. A half hour later, he got into his gray Ford Focus and drove to Bracebridge. On the TV show, it says he went to Lee Stetson's cottage, but I don't think he did because you need a boat to get there. I think he just went near, you know, near the area. And he used Maslin's phone to call himself, Holly, Mm -hmm. and leave a message on the voicemail. So clever. A few hours later, Holly was back in Oakville. (laughs) Maslin was dead by then. Holly checked his email on his laptop, and there was a message from the head of Midge Energy, the Ohio company that had his equipment, and they wanted to speak to him right away. And he replied, okay, no problem. Call me when you have a moment, Todd. Then he returned a call he missed from his wife. If he'd been as smart as he thought he was, he also would have returned the fake call to Maslin. But he didn't. Don't you think, like, if if yes. you're supposed to meet with a guy and you fake a message to yourself that you would call him back? He didn't think of that, though. He then started cleaning. The security cameras caught him walking past with a black garbage bag, and then one from a neighboring business shows him <laughs> wearing gloves, carrying another garbage bag that looks heavy. Around 5.30 <laughs> that night, he went to a nearby Home Depot where, at the self-checkout, he bought a funnel and got $100 cash back. He went back to his car to drop off the funnel, then went back to the store and with the cash, bought the same nylon rope that would be found around Maslin's body. Um, And he did that, obviously, so the purchase wouldn't show up on his bank statement. Dumbass. But A, it was all on security cam, and just minutes before, (laughs) he had used his card to get the money. Another dumb mistake. He went back to the lab and hosed it down. One of the security cameras shows water running out from under the door and steaming on the hot concrete. The camera, a few minutes later, catches him opening the back door shirtless, wearing latex gloves and holding a rag. He looks around to see if anyone is watching. Then Howley used the rope he'd bought to drag Maslin's body. His chest had a deep ligature mark from it that the autopsy determined was inflicted post-mortem. Ah. Lista notes that Maslin was a big guy and Holly had to get the rope because he couldn't figure out how to move him. As he dragged Maslin's Mm. body across the warehouse floor, it collected metal ribbons and plastic shavings from around the drill press and a wood chip from beneath the bandsaw that lodged near Maslin's belly button. Well, that's good because Mm. that stuff stayed on him. Later that night, Holly went home with Maslin's body still at the lab. He spent four hours with his family, tucking his kids in. Then at 12.30 a.m., he went back to the lab. He got Maslin's blue Subaru from where he'd parked it, backed up to the loading dock, and went into the building, keeping the door to the loading dock raised. The security camera caught him going into the warehouse, pushed Maslin's body into the car, then running back outside and around to the rear passenger side to pull it through the inside. Maslin's body landed on the tote bags and plastic container that Paul had in his car for running errands. Tracy McLaughlin, a reporter for the Toronto Star who covered the trial on the um, true crime doc, seems a little puzzled as to why Holly put Maslin in Maslin's car instead of Holly's. But Holly had a Ford Focus and Maslin had a Subaru Forester. Yeah. And Maslin was a big guy. And also you want the evidence to be in that guy's car, not in your car. Tracy seemed a little puzzled by a lot of things, but... Holly then drove the three hours up to Bracebridge in Paul's car and dumped the body on the shore and then drove back to Toronto and abandoned the Subaru in a Mississauga parking lot. And again, that's a suburb between Toronto and where Holly lives in Oakville. They're right next to each other. And that was another mistake. And Tracy, the Toronto Star reporter, says, I don't think Todd Holly thought 
that Maslin's body was going to be found that quickly. He should have hit it better. But I, Maureen, think he wanted it to be found because there would have been no point to bring it all the way up there if it yeah. wasn't. The whole thing was to bring it up there so it was found. I'm and sure so he did the letter about the women, skinny dippers. Right, but... <laughs> Right, but I couldn't find anywhere when he wrote that letter. Like, I don't know if he wrote it after he was questioned and started panicking. You know, but obviously he wanted the body found three hours away because it wouldn't implicate him. And maybe he just figured there didn't have to be a backstory to what happened to it. It's not clear to me if the letter had been part of the long-term plan or if it was a desperate... I couldn't find anywhere that said, like, when the letter was written or anything. But anyway, but anyway, I think he did want the body to be found because it wouldn't have done him any good to just have Maslin missing when people knew Maslin was going to be meeting him. That's right. Holly thought he was being smart, but in reality, he'd left a trail of, <laughs> a trail of breadcrumbs that led police to him, though because of his last desperate move, it would take months to arrest him. But we'll get to that in a bit. Mm. On Sunday, September 5th, a week after the murder, the Ontario Provincial Police interviewed him for the first time. After the interview was over, he went back to his lab and on his laptop googled blood removal from carpet. The next day, detectives paid him a call and asked for a DNA sample. He said he'd have to talk to his lawyer first, which is smart, but after they left, he did something not so smart. He googled how to fool a DNA test. (laughs) On September 18th, the police brought in interviewer Jim Smith who's considered one of the top police interrogators in Canada. He's the one who got Colonel Russell Williams to confess. And if you're not familiar with that case, it's been on, I think, 48 hours dateline. Just think of Canadian military guy and women's underwear murders. And um, you'll come up Mm -hmm. with it. I won't go into the whole thing. If you watch Dateline, you've seen it. It's pretty interesting, but anyway. Smith told Holly that they'd be executing search warrants on his property and vehicles and that he was most likely going to be arrested. Smith said, so you may want to talk to your wife about that. Maybe you want to try to get your affairs in order. It was not a smart move on Smith's point because it didn't get Holly to talk. Instead, he went home and on September 21st, 2010, he took a taxi over the Rainbow Bridge into Niagara Falls, New York. Rainbow as... Bridge? How sad! I know. Sorry. Well, it's not the same imaginary one your pet goes okay. over when it dies, okay. but the one that's now closed to Americans yeah, going into can... Canada with they their COVID. They don't want us over there no. with our COVID They germs. never did anyway. Now they have an excuse. That's but anyway, right. as far as Canadian authorities were concerned, he had disappeared. In October... 2010, Verdant, which I take to mean Tom Wallace at this point, announced that it had terminated the takeover discussions of Howley's company, stating that the companies had been unable to complete the due diligence process. And I think they had to do that officially. Obviously, Maslin was murdered. Howley was a fugitive somewhere. It's not going to go on anyway, but I think they had to make an official announcement. In December, Howley's wife, Gina, sold their house for $500,000. But Howley really didn't disappear. It turns out that after he crossed the bridge, he met up somewhere with Mike Midgliotti, the contractor from Midge Energy, who picked him up and drove him to Cleveland. Hmm. Midge put Holly up in a comfort inn in Macedonia, Ohio, which is near Cleveland. There's no sign that he knew anything about Maslin's murder or the fact Holly was a fugitive. 
And again, this was 2010, and he probably wasn't, like, Googling people and stuff. You know, it's right across the lake from Ontario, so you'd think some of the news would seep over, but... Yeah, it's a different country, though, so, you know. Yeah. It was business as usual. They began large-scale testing of the bioreactors, and Halley perfected them so that they worked like they were supposed to all along. Hmm. Midge Energy contracted to install them as a pilot project in a power-generating station owned by Shaw Industries, a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company. In April 2000. 11, they were installed in a Shaw smokestack in Dalton, Georgia. Holly moved to a Hampton Inn in Dalton, Georgia to oversee the project. And they were working great. And as I said, things weren't so great back in Oakville. His wife had to sell his house. And apparently he didn't have a lot of contact with his family, as he probably shouldn't since he was a fugitive. On May 10th, 2011, he was driving back to his motel room from the plant after a day of work. He had a rented Jeep. When the FBI descended on him in the parking lot, they had put an electronic tracker onto his rented Jeep in Ohio and had either been following him or had lost him somewhere. It's not clear why it took them. I couldn't find anywhere. They don't release as much information in Canada as they do in the U.S. about investigations. Mm -hmm. And since this was ultimately a Canadian investigation, um, I couldn't find anywhere why it took so long to find him. Um, yeah, I know. It's why like... why they would have followed him instead of just arresting him if they knew him all the way back in Ohio. None of it's clear. And the U.S. Marshals weren't on the arrest, too. And when he was arrested, they confiscated a laptop that he'd been using to search for jobs in the Caribbean. He had four cell phones, hmm. driver's license and passport, hmm. his birth certificate, $1,500 in cash, and a drawing from one of his kids of a turkey wearing a pilgrim's hat Aww. with a note that said, Happy Thanksgiving, I heart you. Which Aww. Michael Lista, the journalist, took to show, you know, he loved his kids and family. I, oh, I need more than that. You know, you don't just desert them and they have to sell the house. He also had a piece of paper with his wife's name and her new phone number on it since she had had to move. He was extradited back to Canada at the end of July, where he was processed for the first-degree murder of Paul Maslin, and his trial in 2016 took almost three months. Wow. Among the evidence against him was blood with Maslin's DNA found in the Subaru at the Muskoka Falls boat launch and in Halley's warehouse splattered on tools as well as on shoes that were in the warehouse and some other places. Gloves found near Maslin's body had Halley's DNA inside and outside of them as well as Maslin's on the outside. Police also found cans of white paint throughout the warehouse and evidence Hmm. a wall had recently been cleaned and painted. And remember how the forensics cop had thought to put a tent over the body in the crime scene? It was a good move because it did start raining that day, but they were able to find those metal and plastic shavings and wood chip stuck to Maslin's body that all matched stuff that was in the warehouse. They were all traced back to Holly's lab. They found tons of stuff on his computer. Tracy McLaughlin, (laughs) the Toronto Star reporter, um... Or Toronto's son, I'm sorry if I've got that wrong, who covered the trial, describes him as computer savvy because he hmm. did research on Maslin's personal information and things like how to commit a murder and get away with it or how to get an alibi. I don't really call that computer savvy. Computer savvy would have been doing it on a well, computer. You know, shit, he wasn't savvy enough to get rid of it. I know. Like, he'd have to get rid of the hard drive, but he didn't even <laughs> try to do, he didn't even try to delete it and stuff. And she said, quote, he was researching things a regular person wouldn't. And I'm like, uh, yeah, speak for yourself. <laughs> I know. 
His lawyer at the trial said that despite all that evidence somehow, and I didn't go through the trial transcripts and stuff, Maslin was never in Holly's warehouse. But her big defense was also, it didn't make sense for Holly to have killed Maslin and covered it up as the prosecution charge because he was too smart to make so many dumb mistakes. Oh, please. She said he couldn't have possibly laid out enough plastic or cleaned up well enough to leave so little blood there. But there was blood. There, were, She said there would have been more around there. Even though oh, the Lord. trial lasted almost three months, the jury deliberated for 24 hours and they came back with a guilty sentence that he was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years. At the time, this was in April of 2016, it said he was going to appeal and also that A Lie to Die For, which I think was made in 2019, said he was going to appeal. But I can't find any articles after April 2016, so hmm. who knows. The time served means he can apply for a reduction in the number of years without parole and get out as soon as May 2026. We have spent many months in this courtroom with Mr. Holly, Maslin's sister, and Maslin, said in a victim impact statement read aloud to the court. He has never made eye contact. He has never acknowledged our position as victims. He has shown no sense of empathy in our loss, no remorse, no contrition. Maslin's family, including his mother, Mildred, attended nearly every day of the lengthy trial. And hearing her son may have died slowly as he lay on Howley's warehouse floor and bled to death has profoundly affected their mother, and Maslin told the Toronto Star, quote, In our family, we have spent hours trying to understand what could have gone so wrong that Paul's life was taken. He believed in Mr. Howley and offered him all of his trust. Trust and generosity led to the, his demise. Mm-hmm. The prosecution, or the Crown, as they say in Canada, and its closing arguments agreed. Assistant Crown Attorney Lindsay Jean said, Paul Maslin died because he unfortunately became Todd Hawley's biggest supporter. Hawley's wife told a reporter afterwards that she'd been married to him for years, and I know this man couldn't have done it. When they came back with the guilty plea, she was absolutely shocked. Hawley just (laughs) stared straight ahead, and the reporter, this young woman who writes for Huffington Post, whose name I didn't write down, said it's hard to understand how someone couldn't have any reaction and I'm like, he's a psychopath. And also Tracy McLaughlin, the, the Toronto Sun or Star Reporter, said, um, <laughs> did have one good insight. She said she thinks the reason he didn't clean up as good as he could have is because he thought he was going to get away with it and that they weren't going to tie him to it, which I kind of agree with. But she also said she couldn't understand how someone who looks so normal could be so devious. And I'm a, um, oh, hello, geez. psychopath. Um, like, looks have anything to do with it. I know, exactly. Uh, and to me, he does look like a psychopath. But a lot of the people in that A Lie to Die For show, the word psychopath was never mentioned. Judy Ho, a forensic <laughs> psychologist on the show, kind of came the closest. And like she said of his family life, you know, how the one reporter had said he seemed to be a good family man. She said it's not unusual to see criminals doing things that are incredibly sadistic. But still treating people in their life with love as long as, you know, it gets them what they want and works for them. Yeah. She thinks either he thought the end justified the means, like he was doing this big thing for the environment and maybe everyone would forgive him. But on the other hand, she said he probably didn't think about people forgiving him. She said he was such a narcissist, he thought he was going to get away with it. And he had a propensity to convince people of his delusions, probably his family. And she joked that probably, or maybe she wasn't joking, that his lawyer also shared his delusions. His friend Brody, uh, an older guy, said, I felt like the wrong guy got it. It wasn't right. Nobody didn't like Paul. 
Many of the documentaries said that the letter, maybe because it's called a lie to die for, they had to zero in on one thing, but they said the letter was the mistake that did him in. Stacy Jensen, who was a court reporter at the trial, and I don't mean a reporter for a news outlet, but the actual court reporter who takes yeah. the transcript, so it was kind of weird they had her on the show. But she said everybody knew Paul, and it was, and the letter was just ridiculous. Anyone who knew him knew he wouldn't hmm. be up in Bracebridge, but for some reason Howley thought people would believe that Paul Maslin was the person described in the letter. Tracy, the Toronto Sun reporter, said his biggest mistake was probably writing that fake letter. It was bizarre. It was ridiculous. And they were able to find it on his computer, and also his researching <laughs> Maslin's life on his computer, he just blew it for himself, she said. And I agree that the letter was a mistake, it was stupid, and it also shows that Howley, you know, he dealt with Maslin, he'd known him for a long time, and I think it shows his narcissism, because he was so unaware of who Maslin yeah. was and what he was like, he'd spent enough time with him that he should have come up with something better. But I do think even without the letter, they would have caught him because of all the forensic evidence no and the fact I'm so many idiot. people knew they were meeting. Who else would... I know. When they're I looking know. at who likely people, you know. I know. And, and, but, and one of the people whose who's perceptions I have the biggest issues with is, is Michael Lista, the journalist hmm. for Toronto Life. He wrote a lengthy feature about it, and he was also on that show. And he keeps talking about Howley's dream. For instance, when um, Howley fled over the border, Lista says, Howley um, is not going to let a massive murder investigation get in the way of his dream. And he said that as the thing started to succeed, the murder didn't weigh on him. Or if it did, it wasn't so burdensome to keep him from seeing his dream through. And I'm like, um, he's a psychopath. You know, and, and Lisa also says, you know, so many people counted him out, underestimated him, condescended to him. But um, he was proving them all wrong. And once it worked in Georgia... You know, Holly had succeeded, and he realized everyone else was wrong about him, and he was right. And he did what everyone said he couldn't do, and what the money many said he couldn't do, and what Michael Gaynor said he couldn't do, oh, and blah, blah, blah. And I don't think that's the issue. I think it's not that they said he couldn't do it. It's that it's normal when you're investing to have somebody do the due diligence. And I think they no weren't shit. concerned about necessarily the technology it was it was howley himself that people had issues with and michael yes. lista seems to miss, miss that and at the end of the tv show lista says it's a mistake to think of howley as a simple con artist well it's true howley did lie many times to many people about the technology and sold it over and over to keep afloat he believed enough in, in the technology that one death would be enough at the cost of saving so much more and I think that's a total misread. I don't think he, he was doing it for the glory of this wonderful technology. I think if he thought the technology was going to save the world, it would be for his own aggrandizement. It would, yeah. it, He didn't give a shit about the environment or saving people's lives. I think, I think Howley is a psychopath and the dream was just part of a bigger game to him. He was going to do what he was going to do. If he wanted to save the world, it's not that he cared about the world. It's that he wanted to be king of the world. And I feel yeah. like Lista saying it in that way diminishes the people in Toronto who wanted to go about it the right way and prove the stuff worked. You know, exactly. it's almost like Lista is saying that they didn't believe in the technology. I think if Howley yeah. would have done things the right way instead of the psychopath way, it would have worked soon enough. But he was too focused on the money and playing games and screwing people over. And I think the best assessment of all comes from Stacey Jensen, the court reporter, who said Howley is a pathetic creep. Quote, 
He murdered this man who was his biggest fan, and it was heartbreaking, unquote. So that is my story. It's true. And, and it no reminds good me... Deed goes unpunished. Right, and it reminds me in some ways what we talked about when we were talking about Lady in the Dale, although she oh, yeah. didn't kill anybody or anything. It's not that there's necessarily something wrong with this big idea they have, but just important as the idea is knowing how to take the steps to get... Well, it's just like, what's her name? The blood one. Well, yeah. no, because her, her thing didn't work. Well, yeah, it didn't the, work It was all, fake. It was totally fake based on a false premise. But, like, Lady in the Dale, the car would have worked if... Yeah. But she, you know, went about it the wrong way. It reminds me of when I was... And again, no murders or anything like that. But when I was a judge in the Writer's Digest self-published contest, and you get these books from people, like people want to be a writer, but they don't want to do all the work and take all the steps to have a decent book. They just want to have the book at the end. Yeah, exactly. And then let the world fall at their feet. But it is a sad story, but I do think that some of the people telling it kind of miss the point that Todd Holly didn't think there was a greater good... And yeah. Paul Masland was standing in his way. I think Todd Howley was going to fuck up no matter what. Even if the and technology knew, worked. Yeah. If he had not been selling the stuff to other people too, he could have focused more on what he was supposed to be doing for I Paul know. Maslund. I don't think he really, yeah, he didn't really <laughs> care. He just wanted, he wanted the money. Right. And I think he wanted glory that would come from it, but he didn't have the patience to do it the right way. Only I guess he had put his brains to something good. <laughs> Actually, there's like five episodes of that show where somebody yeah. says that. So that's my story anyway. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a recommendation. Yes, so we are doing a duo NNW on the, yes. on the Netflix doc, This is a Robbery. Yes. About the Gardner Museum heist that we did an episode on. Do you know what episode number? I mm-hmm. it, it was somewhere in the 20s. Yeah, people can I don't find remember. it. If people want to find it, you know, knowing the number isn't really going to yeah, make a it. difference. What is it, four episodes? I believe it's four episodes, yes. And The documentary is made by Colin and, I think the other one is Nicholas Barnacle, who are the sons of Mike Barnacle. Oh, they are. I wondered if they were. Yeah, I think I told you that in a text. That um, may have. Who used to be a columnist for the Boston Globe and is now on uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC. And we don't need to go into the whole Gardner Heist history. People, you know, they was... can listen to our episode. Yeah, yeah, or watch the documentary. But uh, before, excuse me, but they need to listen to our episode. Yeah, yeah. But um, before we start the list, I am automatically taking a tea kettle point away. Oh my god! There was a whistling tea kettle. Yes, there was. So there were um, some other things too. Yes, there was. That's why we go through our ten things. Well, yeah, but not, no, I mean, besides the tea kettle, there was something, there was food or something. I can't right, remember. and we're going to get to that in a second All with right. bad reenactments where I'm taking away a point Ooh. because they had unnecessary, like, I think it's important to show the reenactments when somebody's like telling what they think happened. Yes. But for instance, when the woman who's cured her, the museum says, I was having breakfast and they called, you don't have to show an egg frying in a pan. And toast coming out of a toaster. 
I know. You know what I'm saying? And this blurry person getting a phone call in the background. <laughs> yeah. And also, it bugged the shit out of me. One thing I always remember about this robbery, because I remember it when it happened, and I, you know, was a subscriber to the Boston Globe. I was so confused by the security guard with the long hair. Yes, yes. And the fanny pack. I always remember the fanny pack. And one of the things was the weird way... In real life, the tape was taped yes. around him. But in the yes. reenactment, they had the tape wrong. And it's like, yes. if the way his, tape, his head is taped was weird enough to make police and stuff wonder about it, then at least have his hair taped right and his face taped right in the reenactment. So that's why I'm taking a point I away. watched with mom and mom watched some of it with me and dad watched some of it with me. And every time they showed the photo of the guy with his head all taped, mom would be like, eh, what's <laughs> wrong? And I'm like, mom. So what did you think funny. about the reenactments? I'm taking a half a point off. I didn't like some of them, but others I thought, it was an interesting way to do it where when they had the tapes of um, people talking, they would kind of show people, but they didn't show their faces or something. So they right. kind of were acting out what the people were saying. And I thought that was an effective way to do it. So you wouldn't just be. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was good. Narrative cliches. I am taking half a point Ooh. for one particular thing. Oh, what is it? Tell when me. they go to Maine, they show, <laughs> like, and they go to this restaurant in Freeport or something, and they show, like, some lobster shanty on a dock <laughs> somewhere that's probably, like, Rockland, Massachusetts, or they probably didn't even go to Maine to Yeah, because D- Dad was watching with me with that, and he said, that's not Maine. Yep, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> and so these Boston guys... And their typical Boston arrogance think, oh, let's just show a lobster shack on a dock and everybody will think it's Maine. Take a drive 90 fucking minutes to Portland and take a picture of the fucking restaurant. What the pro- what's your problem? So you're putting that in narrative cliches? Okay. Yeah, because yeah. it's a cliche about Maine. Yeah, that's that, true. You know, okay. that all, yeah. Everything's a lobster shack. Yeah, although when they showed the guy's place in Madison, that's de- that was definitely Madison, but they probably got a photo of it. <laughs> you know, that old farmhouse with the paint peeling and stuff. Yes, yeah. How about you for narrative cliches? Um, I'm not taking any points away. Well, the fact that there really isn't, there isn't a narrator, right? And now you no. can't remember. No. Not really. They just have, so I, I'm not taking a point away. I thought okay. that was okay. Racial gender obtuseness, I would say no. No. Although, are there any people of color at all in the... I can't no. remember, but it's Boston. So <laughs> the people of color are all in a different part of town. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, if Lack there are no of good visuals. I'm taking away half a point. Ooh. And it's not so much that it lacked. Almost, in some ways, there were too many. It was too frenetic, and I know that's part of storytelling, too. But, for instance, in the first episode, I can't remember what they were talking about, and they showed these random pictures, not ones that were stolen or anything. Random pictures that obviously had some meaning. Just flashed on them and stuff. But it was distracting, and you don't find out what they mean till like, two episodes later when there's stuff like Tommy Connor had stolen. Mm-hmm. But you don't know when they're showing them there unless you're really, really familiar. And so I thought that was distracting and confusing. In fact, a lot of that freneticism, it could go in storytelling, too. It's like, you know, have you ever had yes. a boyfriend who, when you're watching TV, sits there with the remote in his hand All and clicks... Yes, and clicks channel to channel, so you don't even have time 
to figure out what's on one channel yeah, until exactly. he's ch- which is one reason I'm single. That's what parts, especially the first episode, parts of it felt like like they were just jumping from thing to thing. And maybe mm-hmm. that's under storytelling, but those random visuals that you don't find out for two more episodes what they were pissed me off. So it was minus Ooh. half a point. I'm not taking any points off for lack of good visuals because if I could give it a point, I thought that a lot of the visuals were really good. And anyone that hasn't been to that museum and showing how beautiful, especially like the courtyard area and mm. stuff, they had some really, and maybe it's because of our giant giant screen tv that we have now (laughs) but i thought it looked really you could see how beautiful it was and you know how i love the drone shots too of the buildings and stuff so yeah i'm not taking anything away from that i might agree with you about the thing but it's in a separate missing pieces don't i mean there's a lot to the story you know and there's more they could have said about some things but i don't feel like there were any missing Mm, nothing jumped out at me no i'm not that was okay Inaccuracy, anachronisms. That's where I'm taking a point off for the mm. main thing. For the because same thing that, that I... Because me. of the lobster. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It just annoys me. Right. It's just typical Boston arrogance that, you know, the one thing they know about Maine is you can get a lobster there. Not that I know every single thing in Maine, but <laughs> storytelling... I thought was good. The freneticism bugged me, but since I took away half yes. of... Well, first of all, I liked all the Boston accents. It's always fun. Yes, I did. Cliché as they were about Maine, they know Boston, and I thought yes. they did a good job of portraying. And it's also like you get these different parts, like you get the museum curator and those people. You get the reporters who are like, mm-hmm. you know, typical reporters and lots of whom you've seen on other documentaries mm, in, in boston yeah. and the cops and the mobsters and the it, it just felt and the like defense lawyer <laughs> real to me and i also like they had graphics that helped show yes things yeah that defense lawyer although that, that that would be in that should have been in well i felt it helped with the it storytelling yeah it doesn't I'm going to take a half a point off of storytelling because of the the reason that you had before. The um, frenetic about nature. The, I thought things, yeah, I thought things switched. I was kind of confused at the beginning. I knew the story, though, so, but I feel like if you didn't. Yeah. Um, Even I knowing think, the story, I felt they were showing random things that confused me. And I, like, even know about Miles Connor and stuff. Yeah. It's like they were trying to cram too much in there, especially yeah. that first episode. Freshness. Yeah, I thought it was fresh. Yes. Um, You would think there'd be more, have been more documentaries made. Maybe some people are waiting for the paintings to be found. Mm. Um, I don't think that'll ever happen. No, I think they've been destroyed. Maybe not even on purpose, but you don't take a 400-year-old painting and roll it up and stick it. We'll talk about it after. Yeah. Repetition a little bit, but I think Mm. it's because it was episodic. And some things like showing, uh, you know, I always think it's poignant showing the empty frames on the walls. And so they can show that a lot. And this doesn't even go under repetition, but I didn't mention earlier, like, some of the people, like, the woman telling the story about seeing the the one, um, the Shea Tortoni or whatever. Oh, the one the in the guy's apartment. That guy. <laughs> and she called it Tortolini. Yeah. She was, oh, that's funny. she was that guy's sister-in-law. I liked yeah. her. But back to the, no, just back to the either freshness or storytelling. I know we've moved on. I just want to say, I think it takes people from Boston to have stuff like that and understand the people 
kind of the um, color and stuff that somebody coming in from somewhere else to do the documentary might miss. You know, exactly. And she was funny. She was a typical person. It, it was. Uh, I feel like she was telling the truth, but it was hard to know if she was. And what was with the guy's haircut? Like that that Prince Valiant haircut. Well, he had been in prison, and that was when he got out. So yeah. I think that haircut was from prison, because then he was okay. He was better yeah, that's later. That's Poor true. guy. Although he could have been one of the cops. He looks kind of like it. Anyway, yeah. um, or the fake cop beating the drum. No. I'm not taking anything off No, of that. I'm not. And, and I do want to say, too, I've found over the years, like, even when we did our episode, I left a lot of stuff out because there are so many different threads and so much has mm. happened. Even in the past few years, things happen because there are so many different stories. But I think this is the first thing I've seen that makes the whole mob part make yes. sense. Yes, it did. Because and I'd why... read stuff... And that they would steal them for collateral because we all know by now that they're not really worth money because you can't sell them. You can't can't go somewhere and sell the storm on the Sea of Galilee to anyone. You know. Although in that book, uh, The Goldfinch, she kind of explained that about the collateral thing. Right, right. The, but the I didn't fishes. read the book, The Goldfish. Oh. I'm talking about Gold things having, the whatever. Goldfinch. Yes, The Goldfinch. I'm sorry, Mom. it's late at No, I'm, it's late at night. But... I don't think everybody who wants to understand the mob aspect of the gardener should have to read the goldfinch. No, I know, I know. know. So that's why I'm saying that. No, I think they explained it very well. Because it didn't make sense when you read about it papers right why would the mob want to take the well in in a lot of ways i think a lot of reporters don't understand that like not that we're such experts and so great and everything but i think a lot of people don't understand that that like a five million dollar painting is only worth five million dollars if someone's going to pay for it and there isn't Dr. Noah, whoever sitting in his basement drinking a bourbon or whatever and looking at it, I you know. can't sell, you can't take the storm of the sea of Galilee and sell it to someone. I know you can't. It's worthless. I... It's worthless. Un- unless somebody says to the FBI, I'll tell you where to get that painting. If you don't charge me with drug trafficking, you know, I know. And, you know, it's just, it just makes me so, we talked about this during your episode, the fact that I don't understand, they were in there for that long. I don't understand, I guess maybe because the paintings were so big. You mean the robbers were in there for that long? Yeah, the robbers were in there for, you know, know, almost an hour and a half. Why they ripped, they cut them out of the frames, which I I think they, I always felt they were ignorant about art. And that was the easiest way for them to get them. Well, I think that if they were driving a friggin' Datsun or whatever, too, I, I mean... They had to roll you know, them up. Whatever. So I the think the paintings that... probably wrecked the minute they oh, I'm sure they rolled them wrecked. up. They're 500-year-old It's heartbreaking. Painting. But, too, I know there's a lot of people who have done a lot of head-scratching over the amount of time they spent in there and everything. But it is true that some of the rooms didn't have motion detectors... That the motion detectors didn't work well. So I don't necessarily trust the whole, like, that that guard is the only one who went through the blue room. I don't necessarily trust that. Yeah, that guard took the tortellini one. And whatever they were doing in there, maybe they were just, I don't know, fucking off. You know? Who knows? Because they were dumbass criminals. Maybe they were were enjoying it. It's nice. But who knows? 
I know. But it is, like, especially the storm uh, on the sea. I haven't been to the Gardener for a long time, but I had Mm -hmm. been a couple times before that robbery, like in the 1980s. And that painting always struck me. Like that little joke Rembrandt had himself in it, in the boat. Yes, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm not a, I don't know as much about art as you do and stuff, but there are some things that make an impression on you. And you think that... That this masterpiece has existed for 500 years and some stupid dumbasses. And and, and if they're all wrecked, it's not even because somebody deliberately wrecked them. It's just ignorance, which is almost worse. I know. It's just so needless. And I just don't, I don't understand yeah. it but the, i would recommend the documentary if yes. people whether you know about the gardener yes, um, heist so. and like a lot of the other boston like trial for you know the recent boston docs i like it mm-hmm. when they understand boston and get it right and well so like i said mom watched some of it with me and dad dad really enjoyed it they both didn't realize that the paintings had never been found. Like, they didn't know a lot about it or to remember a lot about it. So for them, it was interesting. Yeah, and I Uh, think a lot of people don't. Like, they have this vague... And I think some people probably don't get why it's... The reason it's a big deal, part of the reason is just because they've never been found and they've never found who did it. How many times has the Mona Lisa been stolen and it's been found and returned? It's just so weird. And it is sad to go in there and see those empty frames. Yes. And if anyone ever has a chance to go there, you should go. It's not a typical museum at all. I felt bad for the woman who was the the director. Anne Holly. Yeah, and who had just, like, started I know. a job, like, six months before. She had to be out there trying to answer a question, and she's probably trying to, like, not cry. I know. And they didn't we, need this. to fucking show an egg frying. For, when she's talking, <laughs> she's talking about getting the phone call that this had happened, and they're showing a fucking egg frying. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It did get better. I think most of my complaints were from the first episode. Yeah, um, I thought it was really good. Think so that do the, you have any theories after watching it? I thought it, that Bobby Donati guy had something to do with it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think it's exactly what they said. I think the, it was a ill-conceived mob thing. It could have been somebody from the inside of the museum who helped. It might not have been. Who knows? It, things were so lax. There it could have been somebody who I used know. to work there. Exactly. Yeah, you know, people were in and out, like the mysterious guy on surveillance who turned out to be like the assistant director. And also another thing I thought was interesting when they showed the people then and now, how many of them <laughs> had, the, had same, the same the haircuts and everything yes. that they had back then. It was the a little guy, odd. The guy the, with the uh, beard, the security. The guy, guy with the beard, the beard with no mustache, bushy beard with no mustache was the same. And the, the security guard with the long hair still had long hair. Every time I see, saw his picture though, all I could think of was, uh, can you imagine having to have your tape removed from your head with that hair? I think people are too spoiled by like suave James Bond type movies and stuff. Yeah. So so they wanna make sense of stupid, incompetent, bungled, stupid shit. Like, they think everything... Like, even, like, my story tonight, people think everything somebody... People do is with purpose and all this and is well-planned and all this, and it's not. They, They just... That's why things about it don't make sense. Because it was these stupid guys who were doing it for these stupid reasons, and... And they thought they had it all planned out, but it 
I don't think enough has ever been said, and I'm glad that they focused on it a little in this documentary about how the you know the museum had paid to have the security audit done. And then basically the trustees or whatever just ignored or blew off what yeah, they had been told. They well, yeah, they didn't do it. Yeah. When you have art worth millions and millions in there, it was so easy for people to just come in and out. And, and it, know. you know, the security just... staff was half-assed. And, you know, I know. I recommend well, it. Well, it's late. I have to get up at five tomorrow. Yeah, so. I have to get up and work, although it's my birthday. I'm not one of those losers who, oh, it's my birthday. I'm going to take I'm not going to work on my birthday. But um, Don't say mean things like that. Some of our people might. Well, maybe they can look inward like and examine <laughs> look <inward>. that. Then. <laughs> but I am not going to bust my ass either. Ugh, at work. I'm not going to. We have a lunch that's our first indoor gathering in 14 like months. Fun. Well, yeah. Oh, you know what? We didn't we didn't say what our final scores were. On oh, yeah, MNW. we didn't. Um, I mine, an eight. mine is six and a half. Ooh. Well, because so of the low. tea kettle. Well, oh, yeah. the tea kettle, the reenactments, oh, yeah. the, the half a point for the visual. And a okay. point for something else, or maybe it's seven and a half. I don't know. But anyway, I, I would recommend, I do recommend it to people. Okay. I think it's... Going back to your luncheon, what I think you, I think you, what you need to do is get really drunk. Yeah, and, and confront, confront them. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to confront everybody. everybody. Yes, I'm going to stand up. In fact, I'll probably rip my blouse open. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good point. Fact, that's and a I'm going to end up like, you fucking cocksuckers. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's definitely okay. my plan. And since it's my okay. birthday, who's going to... My biggest fear, seriously, is that because it's my birthday. Oh, no. They're going to sing. Do, do it, they know it's your Well, I we don't usually let people. I try to hide that. They fact, do know. Uh, they do know just because, like, at our staff meetings every month, they say whose birthday it is and stuff. Because you know how much I hate that. I, yes. I hate pe- being sung happy birthday, too, but I hate even yes. more, like, I hate it when I'm in a restaurant and it's somebody else's birthday across the restaurant and they bring out a piece of cake or something. If it were mine, I would just... And then you have to act because you're a grown-up and shit. You have to act like, oh, isn't this wonderful and you're so thankful. And what you really want to say is, you fuckers, I didn't ask you to fucking celebrate my birthday. But anyway, I guess we should go... Thank you, everybody, for listening. More Thanks on for listening. Twitter and Facebook, kind and all of. that stuff. And, and you can donate on Patreon. And yeah, <laughs> we're so we're so like that. Ugh. Well, it's late. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Bye bye. What the fuck? Why are they censoring me? Why is the government censoring me?